and welcome to episode 49 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than nine years' experience in Brazil and China. This episode marks our two-year anniversary. On May 19th, 2019, I officially launched the podcast with an interview with Noman Merchant, who reports on immigration for the Associated Press in Texas. Hard to believe there have been 49 interviews since then. If you're new to the podcast, definitely go back and check out those early episodes. Those first few are with some of my closest friends in journalism, because let's be honest, they were willing to take a chance on doing it before the podcast even existed. Some of the early ones also include the only ones I've ever recorded in person, something I hope to do a lot more of before the pandemic, namely the ones with Kogwei Ching and Meredith Clark. The Kogwei Ching one starts with a bang. She dives right into it, talking about how she's worried one of her sources could go to jail. So, if you have time, definitely go back and give those early episodes some love. Also, sorry if this episode is a little bit late. I'm recording this intro on Thursday night, and it's seeming unlikely that I will have it done in time to come out at 5 a.m. Brazil time on Sunday, like it usually does. I'm flying back to the United States a little over 24 hours from now to get vaccinated against COVID-19. The pandemic is just very bad in Brazil still, and the vaccine rollout is very slow, so it's a calculated risk that seems worth it. So if this post goes up late, hopefully on Sunday night or on Monday, that's why. One late podcast after two years of always delivering on time. I'd say that's a pretty good record. Also, I already have a very special 50th episode ready to go. It's totally different from all the others, so I'm looking forward to sharing that with you all in about two weeks' time. Now, for our guest. I spoke to Rhett Butler, founder and editor-in-chief of the environmental news website, Mangabay. If you haven't heard about it, Mangabay is an amazing site dedicated to publishing in-depth environmental news with a particular emphasis on news outside of the United States. They get environmental stories from every corner of the earth that no one else has. I first came upon Mangabay when I was preparing for a job interview with Reuters for the current job I have now in Brazil. Mangabay just had such a wealth of information on the latest developments in Brazilian environmental news that I couldn't find anywhere else. But I was always curious. What was this website that I had never heard of until 2017 with a seemingly obscure name? How did this come to be? How did they manage to get all these stories? Well, I finally reached out to Rhett and got the whole story. Rhett tells us about how he kind of fell into the site Mangabay after he wrote a book and just decided to make a website and post it online in the 90s. One thing led to another, and we have the site Mangabay that we have today. It's a truly incredible operation which has environmental news in about a dozen different languages. If you haven't heard of it, definitely check it out at mangabay.com. And if you like it, consider going to mangabay.org donate. The site operates as a nonprofit, and that allows them to do this crucial work that otherwise wouldn't be covered by mainstream media. Your contribution can really make a difference for them. Beyond Mangabay's origins, Red also tells some remarkable stories, including one about getting stranded in the Amazon while running out of food and facing a medical emergency. He also talks about why he's named after a character from Gone with the Wind. He's an extremely unassuming guy, so those don't really come out until the lightning round. So stick around until the end. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Rhett Butler, founder and editor-in-chief of Mangabay. (music) 
to start, if you could just set the scene a little bit for us, uh, tell us where you are, both physically and geographically, and a little bit about what your past week of work has been like. Yeah, I, uh, I run Manga Bay. We're totally virtual, so um, I work from home, and my home is uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I'm in my house right now. We have staff all over the world, um, so... You know, last week I've really been interacting with them. We have people right now who are dealing with very severe COVID pandemic issues in India. So there's been a lot of sort of coordination around that. We also are starting up a bunch of new reporting projects. So there's sort of um, that process of sort of like laying out the framing for that reporting that's going to be done as well as the logistics. Uh, And then we have some tech projects that are going on. And then um, because our production's down due to the due to COVID, I've also been kind of jumping in on the content production side as well. So been doing some writing and, and things of that nature. So uh, and then I guess lastly, uh, doing a lot of fundraising related stuff, too. Sure. Yeah, I can only imagine what an undertaking it must be to run Manga Bay. And you guys, I mean, still produce a lot um, despite the pandemic. So but we'll get into Manga Bay as it comes along, usually we like to start way back at the beginning and talk about where our guests are from and how they got into what they're doing. And if you could just tell us where you're from, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if anything planted a seed early that led you to do what you're doing now. Uh, Yeah, so I was born in California. I was very fortunate as a child to have a mother who was a travel agent. And a father who traveled quite a lot for business, so he had a lot of airline miles. And so my family was very into traveling. And, you know, thanks to my mother, basically, we traveled, I guess, more than average to foreign locations. So we'd be going to places like Venezuela instead of, say, Disneyland. And I always had a special interest in reptiles and amphibians. And so that naturally made me interested in tropical forests, which I thought had the most interesting reptiles and amphibians. And so I would always be asking my parents if we could someday go to the rainforest. And, you know, very fortunately, I had a couple opportunities and, you know, thought thought it was amazing. But the thing that sort of put me on my path to Manga Bay happened when I was 12. We went to Ecuador and I stayed with a fairly traditional indigenous community outside of Yasuni National Park, which is the most biodiverse part of the Amazon. And I had an amazing time in the forest playing with kids my age from the village, and we'd look for frogs and things like that. And I came home, and a few months later, there was a story in the San Francisco Chronicle about this huge oil spill that had happened on the Rio Napo, upriver from where I had been. And so this whole area I had just visited was now coated in, in oil. And so... I wanted to know what had happened to my friends in the forest and the animals. And so that's kind of like what made me aware of, you know, what was happening to rainforests and the environment generally, as well as kind of the power of being informed through journalism. So that got my start or my, I guess, you know, raised my interest. But then the thing that actually spurred me to action, which eventually led to the creation of Manga Bay, was came when I was 17. I went to Malaysian Borneo and had another amazing experience in the forest. You know, it's like beautiful primary forest. It's full of all sorts of interesting animals. And 
you know, this one moment that's really special to me where I was sitting by this natural pool where a you know, little stream came in and a wild uh, orangutan just passed over my head, uh, you know, like 10, 15 meters above me and, you know, kind of lingered for a little bit. And I sort of felt like I had a little bit of a bond. But then I, I came home from that forest and kept in correspondence with the scientists there. And a few months later, the forest was, was cut down for pulp, for paper. And then eventually it became an oil pump plantation. But once that forest was just destroyed, I decided I wanted to raise awareness around forests. And so I began writing a book about, you know, about these ecosystems to raise awareness. And um, that was right when I was starting in college. And so when I was in college, I spent my time writing this, this book, even though my major had nothing to do with biology or journalism. I'm, I'm like a math economics person. So that's kind of like the early, you know, the, the inspiration story for Manga Bay. Why, why were you studying math and economics out of curiosity? So I was interested in ecology, but I didn't see myself going to a career in that space. I was more on a business track. Like I thought I would probably go into investment banking or, you know, like financial management. Not that I was passionate about those things, but just I felt like that was my path. And uh, so, yeah, I... Again, it was it was not my passion, but it's kind of like you know I wanted to make a living. But um, ultimately, like I finished this I, thanks to having uh, AP uh, advanced placement credits uh, in high school, I was able to finish college a year early, and so I spent that year finishing the book. Um, I was also doing derivatives trading, like to pay my to pay my rent and things. <laughs> and so I pitched this book to a bunch of publishers, and one said they were interested. It was an academic press. They went through a peer review process. They came back and said, okay, we're interested in publishing this book, but we don't have a, a budget for photos. And so this is going to be basically like a, a textbook. And so to me, that really defeated the purpose of what I was trying to, what I was trying to do, which was convey the beauty of the rainforest and you know, inspire people to save them. So I thought, well, I didn't write this book for money. I wrote it for impact. And so I'm going to put this online so people can read it for free. And so that's what I did. I decided not to publish it as a book. I put it online and I decided to name it Manga Bay, which is derived from this beautiful island off Madagascar, which is another very special place to me because it's like this island that's covered with rainforest, which is full of all sorts of interesting reptiles and amphibians, as well as lemurs. And it's surrounded by coral reefs and there are whales that that breed right next to the, in the bay right next to the island. So I thought, well, this is a very special place. This is if I'm going to anglicize the name so it's unique. And so if someone types Manga Bay into the internet, um, you know, Alta Vista or whatever, the first thing that will come up will be my website. It'll also be easy to see who's talking about it because you know, there's no other manga bays in the world because it's a unique name. And so, you know, that was the origin of the site, but I wasn't planning to run a website for a living. I was planning to have a real job. And so I started working for a startup in Silicon Valley, basically doing business development type stuff. But I kept, I had, I had the, I had the website and I worked on it nights and weekends and, you know, over the next few years it got popular. And so, um, I don't know how, how much detail you want me to go into, but I could talk a little bit about that journey if, if you'd like. Sure, yeah. So the the website started as just a website so you could get your book online? Like originally it was just a home for that? So the website was the book itself, yeah. So I mean, it was all the text of the book. So I wasn't trying to sell anything. I was just trying to put the information out there so people could have it. And so it was, you know, I converted the chapters into web pages. Uh, you know, broke it down into, you know, logical parts. And so the the website was about rainforest. It's a rainforest website. And then um, 
and this is in 1999, in 2001, the rights to a book I'd written earlier about tropical freshwater fish, which I know it sounds very obscure, but I was really into tropical freshwater fish and it's, you know, it's a decently sized industry. So I've written this book about tropical freshwater fish. And so those rights were back to me and I put that online as well. So Mongabay was originally a, a website with a big section about tropical freshwater fish and a big section about tropical rainforests. And I also started taking pictures because I didn't want to run into an issue where I didn't have pictures again. So whenever I traveled, I would take photos and post them on the site. So it was like photos, rainforests, and fish. And um, <laughs> I'd work on it nights and weekends. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an eclectic collection, but you know, there's an ecological theme running through the fish site. Like, you know, like the, think about where the, the fish in the aquarium store are coming from. Like, what is their habitat? I was very into biotopes, which was, you know, like their natural habitat. And then the photos were nature photos. So, but yeah, I mean, I was, I was working on normal job stuff. But then in mid-2003, Google launched a program where you could put advertising on your website. And so the ads are based off the content on the page. So if I had a page about Madagascar, there would be, or lemurs, there would be advertisements for flights to Madagascar. And so it started to generate revenue. And because the site was relatively popular, the revenue was not insignificant. So within about six months of putting ads on the site, the monthly revenue is nearly equal to my, I guess it's about half my take-home pay. A little bit more than half my take-home pay, so you know my pay after taxes. And so I thought, well, maybe I quit my job and pursue my passion, and that's what I decided to do. And so once I quit my real job, I started the new service for Manga Bay, and so I started doing daily reporting on these issues and started adding a bunch more content since I was, you know, now devoting, you know, ninety, hundred hours a week to Manga Bay stuff. So the site really started to grow at that point and became better known. I guess just. To go back to, uh, so you decided to write this book when you were 17 after an experience and you had already written a book about tropical fish. Were you writing books when you were 14 out of curiosity? Um, yeah. So I, that, that book I wrote when I was 14 to 15 and that was like a reference book. And so I worked in a pet store in middle school. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it was high school. I started working in a pet store and, um, I was like managing the pet store. And I was just very interest, interested in fish and I'd go and just do tons of research. I was reading journals. I was going to pet wholesalers, things like that. And I started, you know, it's, it was a reference book. And then I brought in sort of like ecological themes to it. So it was like, you know, about certain fish species. It was like the 400 most common fish species in the United States that you'd see in aquarium stores. And then it was about their habitats, you know, like water chemistry, things like that. So um, again, I was just really into fish. And so... Yeah, I sold I sold that book to um, a big like publisher of pet books in when I was fifteen. Yeah, I think I was fifteen or sixteen when I sold the book. Huh, that's crazy. That's pretty cool. And uh, curious about the book Manga Bay. So, what what kind of book was it? I mean, did you bring a lot of your personal experience into it? Was it or was it more of a scientific book? Or how how did you come at it? So it was a general interest book. It didn't have any personal experience and it was really just kind of explaining to the audience like what rainforests are, you know, what their ecological significance is, what was happening to them and then, you know, how to save them. And so that was based off a ton of time reading in the library, reading academic journals, speaking with experts. There was some travel, you know, like I would save as much money as, as I could from my jobs in college to travel during the summer off into the tropics. So, 
but it was it was it was more based off of research in the kind of the library and, and talking with experts. Huh. Still, that's pretty pretty cool, pretty crazy. That uh, I certainly it never occurred to me to write a book when I was a teenager. Did <laughs> this all just occur to you naturally? You don't sound like you were a person who was really into you know, quote unquote journalism, but just like uh, that transition to suddenly I'm going to write news for this website. I mean, uh, did it occur to you naturally? I mean, it doesn't seem like the necessarily it would, everyone would go in that direction. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I kind of look for, for gaps or where, like where the highest marginal value would be. And so in sort of the rainforest space, I guess is how I'd classify it back then. There's a lot of advocacy, you know, a lot of activist groups that were telling you what to do. And so I didn't really feel like I would add much there, but I didn't see as much good information coming out about rainforests. And so part of that was from my research. I just found that a lot of the information out there was either very sporadic or was coming from environmental NGOs. And so it was coming from groups that had an advocacy angle. And I thought that it would be very valuable to, to have more news reporting. And so that was kind of like the gap I felt like I could fill. And so my approach from the get-go was really, you know, provide people with information so they can make decisions rather than telling them what to do. And so that was my approach. And I guess it did fill a gap because people started coming to the site and people, you know, started thinking of Manga Bay as a news organization, even though it was just a guy in his apartment in his pajamas, you know, writing articles and then traveling and talking to experts, but I was, you know, no different really than anyone else. <laughs> so you're one guy in your pajamas in your apartment or in your house. What year was it founded? Um, so I started doing Manga Bay full-time in 2004. I started the site though in 1999. Gotcha. And how did you find it? Did you, was it a lot of trial and error at first? I mean, I know journalism isn't rocket science, but uh, I imagine you didn't have much training in it. How how did you navigate that? I mean, I guess I just sort of figured it out. I mean, I just knew that, I mean, I guess I just sort of picked up on the basic principles of journalism. And I was always sort of trying to avoid words like unfortunate and things like that. It was like introducing my opinion into my reporting. I mean, sometimes it, it crept in there, but I was trying to be, you know, I would say objective and where the advocacy happens is really more around the topic selection. So the fact that I am reporting on illegal logging in the Amazon is kind of a form of advocacy, but I wouldn't necessarily be telling someone that logging in Amazon is bad or, or whatever. I would say that, you know, this is the impact on the environment, but not how someone should feel about it necessarily. I would try to let the story or the characters in the story, you know, express their opinions rather than myself. I think just I read a lot, and so I sort of picked up on best practice just by, you know, my sources and, you know, kind of went from there. I mean, I would travel a few times a year to tropical forests, meet with scientists, you know, go out to the field, things of that nature. So it was a mix of, you know, reporting off other people, what, what other people were reporting. So like, you know, an NGO report would come out or like a, a study would come out and I would cover that, you know, provide some context around it. I would do field-based reporting on my own. Yeah, I'd cover like, I guess, breaking news type stuff. Uh, you know, like I if Brazil came out with new deforestation numbers, I could do a story about that. So, you know, that was kind of the type of reporting that Mongabay had. And I guess there was also some first person travel reporting, but that was, you know, very much in the minority of what I was doing. 
And how, how long did you do it yourself? And when did you start to involve other people? So in 2007, a student approached me and asked about being an intern. So he, um, he started sending me articles and his articles were very good. His name was Jeremy Hans. And um, so that was in 2007. And then he started contributing fairly regularly to Manga Bay. And uh, I started to feel guilty that I wasn't paying him, even though Manga Bay wasn't, wasn't really, you know, it was not really making much money. But, um, you know, I, I felt guilty about, paying, about not paying him. And so um, there was this conference in Suriname that was happening. And I asked whether he'd like to go to Suriname, which we could meet in person because you know, never met before. And he ended up coming down and his wife came and I met him for the first time in real life. And um, he was going to be finishing school and he asked whether, you know, there might be a job for him at Manga Bay. And, you know, Manga Bay's revenue is growing. And based on the trajectory, I thought, well, there's enough revenue to hire, like to hire somebody and pay a salary. And then eventually, like a few years from now, it'll be enough revenue for two people. So, you know, I can then pay myself a decent salary sort of thing. And so I said, yes. And then, of course, um, the financial crisis hit and the bottom fell out of everything. But I had committed to hire him, so I ended up hiring him anyway and just, um, well, just lived very frugally in money I'd saved. So, yeah, 2009, I had, it was me and Jeremy and we were, you know, doing our thing. And, again, people thought Manga Bay was a much bigger enterprise than it was just based on the, the volume of content and the, the breadth of places that we covered. And so... People thought we had a whole newsroom, but it was just really two of us. Wow. Yeah. And do you spend, how? I mean, pre-pandemic, did you spend a lot of the year traveling? I mean, that's the other thing. I imagine it's, you know, very burdensome running a site. Do you, How much opportunity do you get to travel? So my travels evolved over the years. So gone are the days where I can be offline for more than a day or two, just because I have to put out fires and, and manage the team and, and deal with things. Uh, you know, back in the old days, I would, I could do more, I guess, quote unquote, expedition type travel, which is, you know, probably exaggerating what kind of travel it is, but I could be offline for like two weeks or something like that and, you know, go out to very distant places. Now, well, I mean, pre-pandemic when I traveled, it's much more opportunistic and it's shorter time in the field. So, I mean, right before the pandemic, I had meetings with my LATAM team in Colombia, and I just popped down to the Amazon for, I guess it was four days. You know, it's just like an hour and a half flight and then five hours by boat. So it's not very far away. You know, so I was just out in the, in the forest and I just used it to take a bunch of photos. So I, I took like, I think I posted probably 10,000 photos from, you know, those four, four-ish days in the forest and captured a bunch of video which have now been used a lot on the site. So that tends to be what my travel looks like more now. I will pre-pandemic is I have to go somewhere for a meeting and it's, or for a series of meetings. And so I'll pop out to the field for a few days, wherever I'm going to be. So, you know, Singapore, I might go over to Sumatra for a few days or something like that. I try not to do it. I mean, I'm always cognizant of my carbon footprint. So, I, you know, I, I, I don't, travel as much as possible. I, I actually try to limit my travel. But if I, do, if I do sort of need to be somewhere in person, then I want to try to add on something interesting. And by interesting, I mean like going out to the field for a few days. And then when I'm out in the field, I'm just from, you know, dawn till dusk, I'm just out very busy taking photos and doing stuff like that. But also 
staying in touch with my team. And obviously it's a lot easier now to be in touch with the internet availability and cell phone networks and things like that. And so sometimes I have to get a little creative in terms of getting internet access. But, you know, often if you can get your phone high enough off the ground, you can establish a connection to the outside world. And so I've taken advantage of that in some of the places I've visited, which seem like they're pretty remote, but I'm able to find a, a mobile signal by getting my, my phone high enough. <laughs> Climbing a tree or something like that? Um, so like pulley systems, you know, like putting your phone on a rope. I've put a phone on a drone before. I've stayed in places where there's like a flagpole where you can, you know, get your phone up. And then often you just talk with like the local people, like the rangers, you know, they'll say, oh yeah, if you walk, you know, half a mile this way and go up the hill, then you can get one bar or something like that. So I'm very efficient at optimizing what I can do with a low amount of bandwidth as well. That's funny. So yeah, I guess from there, just kind of take us through the evolution of Manga Bay from there, if there are any highlights and how it ramped up over time. Yeah, so Manga Bay, as of say 2009, was, was two of us. And, you know, Manga Bay, with the, the ad revenue was okay, but it wasn't enough to really support a news enterprise. So it was like basically one and a half salaries so I could pay my, could pay Jeremy and then I could draw some money for myself and then just be very careful with how I spent money. But I had all these ideas I wanted to pursue that there was sort of no business model for, on at least no advertising business model. And so one of those was Indonesia was at this point in its development where it looked like it could tip towards where Brazil was, kind of how Brazil tipped in the mid-2000s, where it shifted away from deforestation-driven growth to something different. And so in Indonesia, there's a lot of corruption in the natural resources sector. And so I thought, well, journalism is actually an intervention that could help make a difference. So by increasing transparency, you could increase accountability and that could actually lead to some, some good outcomes. So, you know, journalism isn't going to tip deforestation from 100 to zero, but it might make a one or two percent difference potentially. And so I thought if there was an Indonesian language environmental news service focused on these issues, it could be impactful. And so by that logic, I decided to start a nonprofit and I put out a proposal to a foundation on the idea of this Indonesian language news service and the foundation said yes. And so, you know, the day that they approved the, the pitch, I put out three job descriptions and sent them out to my network in English and Indonesian. And um, within two weeks, I had over 200 applicants in Indonesia. So I went over to Indonesia, did a, three days of marathon interviews and then hired my team. And they joined within a month. And then we launched a site a month later. And then within a month of launching the site, it was the most popular Indonesian language environmental news service. Wow. I don't speak any Indonesian. So it was 100% credit to the great people who joined the team. I just provided some lessons of what I had learned running Manga Bay and brought in the money. And, um, you know, they really did all the work. So that was kind of the birth of Manga Bay's expansion. And Indonesia was a really interesting market at the time because it was way ahead of the U.S. market in terms of social media adoption. So it was a place where we could test out ideas and then bring them to sort of the global manga bay. We also started to build a network of correspondents there. So our core team was very small. In the first couple of years, it was four people. But we had a network of contributors. I think back then it was probably 10 or 15. And that's grown since then, obviously. So yeah, the first project was Manga Bay Indonesia. 
And then in 2015, I moved Manga Bay English News over to the nonprofit and started raising more money for Manga Bay. And then we just continued to expand. One of the big expansions for us was in 2014, when I was starting to transition over to the nonprofit for English News, was launching this network of journalists, of contributors. And this was based around using Global Forest Watch, which is a platform for forest data. And so this platform launched in 2014. It was really amazing in terms of providing information on forests, but it didn't really tell you the full story of what was happening. So like, why is the deforestation happening? Who's responsible for it? Things like that. And so I thought, well, this data set could be a wonderful tool for sourcing stories. And so I went to, to, to sort of like ground truth it, I went to Sumatra based off of some data on the platform. And we just went out and checked one of the spots that looked really interesting. And sure enough, it had been recently deforested illegally for an oil palm plantation in a protected area that's the only place in the world that's home to tigers, elephants, orangutans, and rhinos. So yeah, it, it worked. And so I thought, well, great, let's scale this up. And so we started to build out this network of journalists to do reporting using this data set. And then that eventually led us to build a much broader network on a variety of topics. And so, yeah, it's kind of been the evolution of Manga Bay, but just, I don't want to drone on too long, but the next big expansion for us was going into Spanish-speaking Latin America, which was 2016. In 2018, we launched in India in English. 2019, we launched in Brazil with Brazilian Portuguese. 2020, we launched in Hindi for Manga Bay, India. And then this year, we're going to be expanding into French, specifically targeting West and Central Africa. So that's been sort of that's been sort of the journey. Wow! Yeah, that's incredible. So, how many people are work? How many full time employees work for Manga Bay, and how big is say your network of contributors? Just to get some idea of scale. Uh, so our full time staff is about fifty five right now. It'll be sixty by the end of the quarter, and I guess. The end of the year would be 65 to 70. And then our network of contributors last year, we had 800 contributors um, in about 80 countries. Wow. And I guess right now, I mean, is the English one the most popular or which is the most popular out of curiosity? So English battles with Indonesia for the most popular. It just depends on the month. Our single largest market in the world is Indonesia, if we're adding all the bureaus together in terms of traffic, followed by India and the United States. So they kind of like all bunched together. Our biggest market is not the United States, which is you know surprising to a lot of people for you know a U.S.-based website. Yeah, that kind of makes sense to me. I, I mean, I imagine you know in places like Indonesia, for example, there probably aren't that many outlets uh, dedicated to environmental news. So, and yeah, I mean, that's, I, I became aware of Manga Bay in 2017, actually, maybe even a little bit before. I mean, I found it a tremendous resource. I was moving, trying to move to Brazil, and I just found it to be such a tremendous source of information because, you know, you guys would write long about these issues. I remember reading long stories about, you know, uh, building uh, hydroelectric dams in Brazil. And it was just information that I couldn't find anywhere else because, you know, a lot of places, including Reuters, we write very short stories. Um, we don't go that in depth, but 
to really get your head around it. You need this detailed information. So, I mean, uh, so over time, I imagine you've gone more into management and less into writing. I see you write now occasionally, but like, I, I just, it's hard to imagine how you have enough hours in the day considering you probably need to write grant proposals and manage staff and I don't know, consult lawyers. It sounds extremely complex. Yeah, that's true. So my role has shifted very much, and I knew that that would be the case. I mean, that was the decision that I made basically in 2011. Do I want to continue writing or do I want to become a manager? And I wouldn't say I wanted to become a manager, but I felt like where I could get the most impact was sort of abandoning my writing and focusing on building an organization. And so that's what I did. So today... I really don't do any substantive reporting, but I have a bunch of journalists who are way better journalists than I am working with Manga Bay. And so that's where the leverage comes in. When I do write things, it tends to be, I mean, I, I do, I do interviews, which, you know, are, don't require, you know, going out to the field. I will write commentaries. I'll do like short updates on things I know, like I can just sit down and write. Like, I mean, anytime anything related to deforestation numbers in Brazil, I can just sit down and write something in an hour that's pretty comprehensive without any additional context, basically. So that's kind of writing I do now. It's not it's not real reporting. Um, occasionally, I'll go out to the field. So if I go out to the field and I find something interesting, I'll do like a short write-up. But um, I find what that often looks like is, I mean, just, just for example, like I was in Madagascar in 2019. And when I know I'm going to Madagascar, what I'll do is I'll go on a global forest watch and I'll check out some deforestation hotspots and I'll see if there are any deforestation hotspots in areas, you know, uh, that are close to where I'm going to be. And then I'll go out and visit the site and do like a ground, you know, like ground truth thing. I'll bring a drone, I'll take some aerial photography and I'll do a quick write up and then I'll provide that information or, or collaborate with a local reporter who can then dig into what's really happening there because I'm just not there long enough to do substantive, real reporting. But in Madagascar, for example, I went to this area, which has just had incredible rates of forest loss. And um, I took a bunch of drone images and video of this protected area just being burned down. And um, it was very cool because that footage was immediately used by, it was taken by an NGO to the government, and the government actually shut down a road that was allowing access to these... Uh, you know, legal land clearer. So it was nice to see that impact. And then, I mean, again, right before the pandemic, I was in the Colombian, Peruvian, Brazilian Amazon, and um, I was staying in this area. And you know, when I go, one of the reasons I picked this area was because I see some interesting stuff on Global Forest Watch. I flew the drone over there and, um, you know, took some photos and I was showing the imagery to the local, the local indigenous community and they were fascinated. And then I was asking what the deforestation was because I, I had assumed it was just, you know, community cassava or something like that. And it ended up being a illegal encroachment for a coca plantation in their community forest that they didn't even, that they didn't know about. So they asked me to give them the GPS coordinates so they could go look into it. It was just really interesting to see that having that bird's eye view provided information that they did not have, which was very surprising to me, but yeah, they were very interested in, in that coca plantation and when it popped up. And so I, I had the global forest watch data as well. So I could tell them the exact date when it, when the forest is cleared. And so they were very interested in it. Wow. And 
Do you speak any languages out of curiosity? I mean, I go out to the Amazon and like, you know, I speak Portuguese and even out there, I mean, talking to the indigenous, the indigenous don't always speak great Portuguese. I mean, it can be a little bit tough. I imagine you probably speak Spanish if you're from California. Yeah, I speak Spanish. Not amazingly well, but enough to get by. And in this case, this community, most of the people that I interacted with spoke Spanish. I mean, they have tourism there, so they're used to dealing with tourists. So that's probably why the Spanish is, is, is why they spoke. It's, it's also fairly close to the Amazon River, so it's you know it's pretty pretty mainstream. But yeah, I mean, typically when I'm out in the field, it's very normal for me to be in a car with people who don't speak English very well, and I don't speak the language, and we're just sort of figuring out how to get by. But often I will travel with a Mongabay journalist, like a local journalist, or have a, you know, like a fixer who will speak the the local language if it's not Spanish. And is the focus still very much on tropical forests? I mean, obviously there's a lot of environment out there. Have you considered expanding beyond that or do you intend to keep the focus where it is? We're not focused on just tropical forests anymore. So I would say like our main beats are really forests, oceans, wildlife, the conservation sector, and then kind of the intersection of those issues and indigenous peoples and local communities. So kind of those like five topics. But that said, I mean, those touch on a lot of things. So we look a lot of like at extractive industries, the energy energy sector. And usually when we talk about when we're covering things like climate change, it's usually through the lens of one of those topics. So we may not be reporting on like atmospheric CO2 levels specifically, but we may look at like the impact of climate change on the Amazon or something like that. Gotcha. And yeah, speaking of climate change, I mean, I feel like, you know, people have known about climate change for a while, but I feel like in recent years, it's really taken over the environmental conversation. Whereas, I mean, you've been reporting on this much longer than me. I imagine it wasn't like that at when you were starting out. I mean, it was much more about animals and just the fact that people inherently knew that cutting down forests were bad, but they weren't thinking, oh, we're all going to die from climate change because of this. Uh, how do you view that change over time? And do you yourself get more focused on climate change or have you always been or how do you view that shift? Climate change has been, has definitely been talked about since I started in Manga Bay way back when. I think the difference is it's more mainstream now. And the framing is more around climate change. So you might just, as you mentioned, you might in the past, you might talk about deforestation and, you know, the impact on wildlife or something like that. And climate change might just be like one of the seven things that people mention. But now climate change tends to be one of the top two or three things that are or first, second or third things that are mentioned when you talk about deforestation. So it's just its prominence is, is much more widespread. And then sort of the general populace also has a better understanding of climate change and I think maybe, you know, in the 90s and 2000s is more more of a, I guess, a theory for a lot of people. And you still had like a very strong denier component where you just had the, these orchestrated campaigns of people saying that climate change was fake. And so that, you know, that was sort of like the dynamic, whereas now the sort of deniers, I mean, the world is very weird in terms of fake information or like, you know, fake news and misinformation and things. But um, I feel like the climate denial is something that's really fallen more by the wayside compared to, say, like five or 10 years ago. But yeah, I think like in terms of like pendulum swinging, I, I think that now biodiversity is getting more attention than it did, say, like a few years ago. 
so climate climate has been very hot for a while, but um, and bio, you, you heard less about biodiversity, but I feel like bio, biodiversity is now getting back on people's radar. I think COVID has been a factor in that. Also, there's several major biodiversity conferences this year that are kind of making it pop up more on the radar. Yeah, I mean, I would say biodiversity, like uh, there was some specific studies and reporting a few years ago that was about like the percentage of animals that had been wiped out, you know, just in terms of like the raw numbers, how many, you know, uh, monkeys and birds and (laughs) blah, blah, blah. I'm not talking about species necessarily um, had been wiped out. And then, you know, people kind of woke up and realized we should be paying more attention to this than we have been. And I think you've seen that for many publications more recently. I mean, I would also, if we want to talk about trends or something else I could add. Sure. I mean, so one of the other big trends that we've seen over the past, I mean, it's really accelerated in the past couple of years, but I would say it dates back maybe five years is, at least in the conservation sector, is this greater awareness around the role that indigenous peoples and local communities play in achieving conservation outcomes. So it's kind of this merging of sort of historically like social justice type issues with conservation and environmental issues and then like climate issues like coming together more and in the space rather than being kind of siloed right yeah you've seen a lot with the climate justice movement especially and yeah there's a lot of that in brazil let's see and yeah i mean i i guess one one other thing i'll just ask is you know you see all these reports of environmental defenders being killed you know it's a lot every year I mean, some places can be pretty dangerous, especially for local reporters. Does Manga Bay encounter issues with that? Does Manga Bay encounter issues with hostile governments? And and I understand how traditional media navigates that and they have, you know, uh, resources to and they've, you know, been covering wars and stuff for more than 100 years. But I mean, when you're the little guy, I imagine it's much more difficult to, you know, handle these problems. How do you deal with that? Um, Yeah, I mean, so there's definitely a lot of risk for environmental reporters all around the world. We try to be very careful. So we are constantly have our ear to the ground and are looking for evaluating risk. And so, I mean, just for example, a couple of years ago, obviously before the coup in Myanmar, there were some threats, like a couple of environmental journalists got killed. And we had some active reporting in the country and we immediately check in with journalists and cancel some reporting trips. We also, we have like a protocols for people to check in with editors and to do an evaluation before they go out to the field. So, so far we've been, we haven't had problems. I mean, part, part of it's luck, but, I, but a lot of it's also just the fact that we're careful. We don't want to put people at risk or in harm's way. The biggest issue we've had so far is one of our journalists was arrested last year, our editor, Phil Jacobson in Indonesia. The circumstances of his arrest were fairly dodgy. He was detained for, I want to say, I was like, you know, for like a month and a half. Um, most of that was, he was in just staying in a hotel, like a homestay. He just wasn't allowed to leave the city. But he actually did go to jail for a few days, but it was it was kind of a ridiculous situation in terms of what they were trying to charge him with. 
but he was eventually released without charge. He was deported, you know, unfortunately, because he, he loves Indonesia. But that's pretty much the biggest problem we've had so far. Me personally, I've been in some, what felt like dicey situations. I, you know, looking back, I'm not sure. You know, it's always hard to tell at the moment. But, um, you know, I, I think maybe historically, I probably was not as careful myself as we try to be with our contributors and staff. So... You know, I think my level of personal responsibility, my personal safety, I'm willing to take more risk than I'm willing to have our our contributors and our, our journalists take, <laughs> I guess is one way of putting it. Sure, yeah. Yeah, because once you're responsible for someone else, it's uh, it's a lot of pressure and you, that you just you know don't want people to get hurt. And then uh, I guess before we move on to talk about a couple specific stories, I was just curious in, in the realm of, you know, managing all these different operations and finding funding for it and, you know, keeping a staff of that size going. I mean, do you find that there is enough ongoing money that you don't have to worry about, you know, year to year, having to shut certain things down, et cetera, say the economy takes a turn for the worse, or is there ample support out there? There's, there's like enough money in the universe I mean, the hard thing is just like unlocking the money. And so, you know, I'm always trying to raise as much money as possible. I don't spend all my time fundraising. I spend probably, I think it's like 20 hours a week on average. But I think the people and foundations that fund us are very happy with our work. So we put a lot of effort into tracking the impact of our journalism and so I think that that helps us. So like if we get a grant from an organization, then they're very likely to renew because they're happy with the work we've done. So yeah, I mean, I'm, Mongabay's grown every year since it became a nonprofit. You know, we're continuing to expand, but it's definitely something that we're always thinking about and spending a lot of time doing is, you know, trying to just be sure that there is money. But I'm pretty careful how I manage things. We run pretty lean. We're careful in terms of, finances and things like that. So yeah, I mean, it's not a constant worry, but we are always, you know, working to be sure that we have enough resources. Sure. I do, I do plan for, for disasters. So like, uh, you know, when the pandemic hit, I had like a, a risk model, which projects like, what would we do with a 30% immediate decline in revenue? Like, you know, what will that mean for our staff and our contributors? And so I have scenarios to, to navigate that. And so when the pandemic hit, we sort of were ready. And thankfully we didn't end up with a 30% hit, but you know, it's nice to know that we, you know, had the confidence to get through a 30% hit if that's, if that's what happened. Yeah, that's good. That's good to hear. So I guess next We'll move on to talk about some stories. So the first question I usually like to ask is about a story that got away, a story that you wanted to do, but you couldn't pull off for whatever reason. You know, you couldn't prove it. You couldn't get the people you needed to talk to you. You know, a reporting trip went badly for whatever reason. Does anything come to mind? I mean, so I'm sort of a, in an interesting position now because I'm not doing reporting myself anymore. And so like a lot of the reporting that I wanted to pursue myself, but got away for one reason or another, has now been taken on by my staff or contributors. So for example, there were, I was very interested in investigating these huge plantations that were being built in New Guinea. 
and I wasn't able to pursue it myself, but I've since had great journalists do that investigation, investigative work, you know, that I would have wanted to do myself and they did it much better than I would have. So and that's kind of like a, a cop-out answer. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, I guess, projects that didn't work out, it's, it's not a big deal, but I, I did go to China one time to go to, to look at the conservation of this rare monkey and um, made a very, <laughs> a very concerted effort to get out to this area and, you know, made all these arrangements and then got there and just had an official shut me down for no apparent reason, despite having all the paperwork and everything I needed. And that was just very, very frustrating because it was like, you know, five days, whereas right next to where I needed to go and just wasn't allowed to go into the, to the forest to see them despite having all the paperwork. So that was a very frustrating experience for me. But the reality is that now I have this great network of journalists who can go do all the reporting that I, you know, wouldn't have been able to do myself. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, I lived in China for six years most recently. And I mean, it's all too common that, you know, someone or another takes a disliking to your reporting. You know, it's often local officials who are just worried about getting in trouble with higher up officials that, you know, will prevent you from doing things. I mean, I remember trying to go out to some waterfall and we, you know, rent motorbikes and we get all the way out there and then encounter some officials who say, oh, well, Chinese people can go out and see this, but technically this is a restricted military area. You have to turn back. And we had spent the entire day going out there. Um, and it's, you know, some small town mayor with his shirt rolled halfway up and, you know, you can't really argue with them. And yeah, it's pretty all too common, unfortunately. Yeah, this guy, this guy actually spit on my permit. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And he had a whole posse of um, armed people with him. And then, you know, I had the official in Beijing, you know, who wanted to speak with him. And he said, it's not my job to speak on the phone. Uh, so that was that was the end of it. Okay. And then to move on to a story you're proud of, if you could pick a story you're proud of from any time in your career and just tell us a little bit about it, how you came up with the idea, how you went about reporting it, and just kind of start to finish. Yeah, I mean, that's a little tricky. I would say I did some reporting in Madagascar in the late 2000s. So in 2009, there was a, a coup. And under the coup, there was this big spasm of illegal logging of rosewoods, which are a type of valuable timber that is mostly found in the tropical forests of Madagascar, especially in the Northeast, which is where the rainforests are. And it was just devastating the forest because you had all these bands of illegal loggers going in and they were hunting bushmeat and they were taking out other timber as well as the rosewood. And so I did a lot of investigative reporting on the rosewood trade and um, it ended up having a, an impact because the shipping companies that were taking rosewood, that were shipping it out of Madagascar, ended up getting they were identified in this reporting as being sort of like the critical link. And so they, they responded to the stories. There was also a bunch of activism that, you know, started to build around the stories. And so there was pressure on them, like the French government got involved because it made the French government look bad, you know, look bad because they were supposedly committing to reducing deforestation. And so it was just interesting reporting because it had this impact. And I also got some blowback. I mean, the president of Madagascar, called me personally a bastard, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> um, and we had a cyber attack 
out of China because the Chinese shipping company or Chinese uh, traders are involved. And it was a pretty sophisticated attack because, I mean, not only did they try to like try to do denial of service, but they did a, a letter writing campaign to our web host saying that we were doing illegal activities. But when I you know spoke with Amazon Web Services and explained the situation, like it was fine. But it was it was just interesting at the time. But uh, yeah, I mean that that reporting was very significant to me because it was in an area that was very special for me personally. But then also just seeing the impact of that reporting in real life was very rewarding. And so how did you get uh, all the information? I mean, was it just a matter of going there and asking around? Or how do you, you know, connect all the dots with the companies exporting and all that? I had a lot of on-the-ground sources, informants who were providing me with information. And then we were also using, I was also using things like satellite data to look at... Um, the rosewood stocks, so you can actually see the timber being hidden behind buildings and things like that. So it was a combination of, you know, on the ground intelligence from people in Madagascar who went to great risk to communicate with me and then using these, you know, remote sensing sources. Okay. And then I guess one one more question just before we move on to the lightning round that occurred to me is uh, I report on environment you know, it's kind of depressing, honestly. I mean, I go on these trips, like I go on a trip to see these large wildfires, and, you know, you see amazing things and you see horrible things. And I do wonder long term, like if I do this for, you know, 10, 15 years, the rest of my career, like, will it have long term psychological effects? And I was just curious how, how you found that part of reporting on the environment, just the fact that so much of it is terrible. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, it's definitely not a happy subject most of the time. I mean, I'm I think my personality is such that I'm an optimist, but um, the way that it tends to manifest with environmental issues is I'm very you know it's I, I see I, I see opportunities. So like when something's bad, then I look at it and I'm like, okay, what are the opportunities around this? And sometimes there really aren't opportunities. But um, it also makes, I guess, like it tends to color me in terms of like being skeptical. So when I hear of some, some like magic solution, I'm immediately skeptical. So I'm certainly, certainly that happens. But yeah, I, it's, it is, there, there's a lot of bad stuff happening out there. I try to look for the upside where I can, but also be grounded in reality. So five, six years ago, I was, I was there as somewhat optimistic for forests. And then it was sort of like the past five years have just been really, really bad for forests. But I feel like we're back on the upswing now. I think my optimism, like I used to say, like I, had, I was an informed optimist when it came to forests, but where I was very naive was around politics. And politics have just gotten so weird lately. You know, it's like the wild card. And um, so that's what I really missed was I was just wrong about the politics. But that said, like the political situation in some countries is changing now. Like, I mean, certainly in the U.S., you know, the Biden administration is far more pro-environment than the Trump administration. So that's positive. And then a lot of countries follow what happens in the U.S. So if the U.S. is, you know, shifting its, its rhetoric and its narrative, then that has knock-on effects for other countries. But then, again, you look at places like, you know, Brazil and, you know, the, <laughs> the environmental situation is not good. And if you look at what's happening in Indonesia, sure, deforestation has declined the past three, four years, but the policies that are being put in place right now are 
pretty scary from an environmental standpoint. So certainly not bad, but I, I guess I look for I look for the good where possible. And I also sort of have this hope that once enough people get concerned enough about climate change and environmental degradation, or the private sector realizes that it's a financial issue for them and they can they're either going to lose money because environmental degradation reaches a certain point, or they can make a lot of money by fixing it, then that can drive change pretty quickly. And so I feel like we may be nearing an inflection point like that. I mean, certainly if you look at sort of interest in renewable energy, I mean, especially solar and then battery storage on the battery storage in the grid and then things like electric cars, it's been incredible what's happened in the past year. So I find that encouraging. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem things have changed a bit uh, in the right direction recently. And and just one more thing is I think um, another, another issue that I've seen just, you know, over a relatively short period of time, the last 20 years is that the availability of information is just much better. So we have this radically improved transparency around what's happening in the world. So we no longer have ignorance as an excuse for not taking action. Like we can see that forests are falling. We can see that coral reefs are, you know, dying. And so we can't just sit back and ignore it, but like the data is there. So we have to actively ignore it. So, you know, we, we, we can't say that we didn't know because we do know. And so, you know, I'm hoping that that is also empowering action as well. Right. Yeah. Okay, great. I guess with that, we'll move on to the last section, which is the quickest. It's the lightning round. Here we go. What is a must-read publication that you look at to keep up on environmental news that is not Manga Bay? Well, so I think Grist does a very good job covering sort of U.S. environmental politics and issues like domestic issues. So I would, I would definitely recommend Grist. I think The Guardian does some really good coverage. And I think kind of legacy newspapers like New York Times and Washington Post are doing really excellent U.S. coverage. So I'd recommend all those. Great. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch? It can be whatever medium, just for fun, but something vaguely journalistic in nature. Um, So I enjoy a podcast called Behind the Bastards. It's about sort of the worst people in history. (laughs) So it's run by a journalist. And I just find it entertaining. So yeah, that's that's kind of like a fun listen for me. It's called Buying the Bastards? Behind the Bastards. Oh, uh, okay. Gotcha. What is the coolest place or situation that your work has put you in? Um, well, I mean, I sort of, my work allows me to go to a lot of interesting places. I mean, my favorite place is Madagascar. Uh, I just find it very interesting. I've had a lot of adventures in Madagascar. So I guess that's the coolest place. But in terms of like crazy stuff that's happened, probably going to Suriname. I had a time where I got stuck in the rainforest for a while with kind of a pretty significant health problem and wasn't sure how I was going to get out. So that was um, very exciting. How how long was it? Um, It was only a week, but I didn't know if it was going to be a week. And, you know, we ran out of food and it was like three weeks by dugout canoe if we wanted to try to get out any other way besides an airplane and then the airplane almost ran out of fuel i mean it was just, i mean it's a longer story for a lightning round but it was uh it was very stressful time <laughs> if you're willing to share i'd be interested to hear but i understand if you don't want to talk about it 
Oh, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. So, yeah, I mean, I went to, to Suriname uh, and I went out to stay with Turio people, which are, you know, right on the, they're kind of on the border with Brazil. It's, you know, really in the middle of the, of the rainforest. And uh, we flew out there, you know, in a small plane, landed, everything seemed great. And then the next day we noticed that no airplane came and we asked why. And they said, well, there had been a plane crash. And so they were implementing new new rules about flights and because it was raining in the area, they thought it would be bad weather and wouldn't be setting planes. And this is a rainforest, so it rains every day this time of the year. And so I thought, well, this could be a problem, but I'm not going to worry about it right now. I'm just going to like go on and do what I'm going to do here. And so, you know, the next few days, no airplane, no airplane. And then the day I was supposed to leave, no airplane again. And then the next day, no airplane. And so I decided, well, you know, I'm going to be stuck here for a while, so I'm going to go do some things I want to do. And so I, I was very interested in this frog. And so I went out with the indigenous people and we went and found these frogs. And as we were coming back, one of the indigenous people used machete and, and hit a log and a piece of the log went into my eye and I was wearing hard contact lenses and it knocked the contact lens basically like beh almost behind my eye, like on top of my eyeball. And um, it was so far up, I couldn't get it out. And so I now had this problem of this contact lens being on top of my eye and it started to get infected. And, um, it was, you know, every night I would go to bed and, you know, kind of like pray for no rain. And then at two in the morning, it would rain for an hour or two. And because it had rained, there would be no plane the next day. And so that went on for the next few days. And, um, we ran out of food and because the river was flooded, we couldn't get food from the village. And so, it just just getting worse and worse. And then eventually a plane did come. It came and dropped off supplies. And then, you know, we wanted to get on. And they said, oh, no, there's another plane that's going to come for you. We don't have enough fuel to fly back. And so I thought, okay, great. Well, maybe there's another plane coming. But then um, the people I was with, they argued and eventually persuaded us, <laughs> persuaded the pilot to take five people in a four-seater it supposedly didn't have enough fuel to get back with one person. So <laughs> it just seemed like a really bad idea. But, you know, we did it anyway. And um, watching the, the fuel gauge the whole way back, you know, the four-hour flight or whatever it was. And we were just on fumes when we, when we saw, finally saw the city. And, um, you know, I had tried. To, uh, and then I had to go through the ordeal of getting this thing out of my eye in this very old and unpleasant uh, medical office and where they locked me in a chair, like, you know, bolted my arms down and my face into this metal contraption and <laughs> took out pliers. So it was, it was not fun. And then of course the rest of the trip was also a mess too. So it was just, it was, it, it, it was a rough trip, but, um, you know, ultimately I, I got the thing out of my eye and my vision is fine now. So everything is solved. Yeah, wow, that's an incredible story. And yeah, I mean, things can take a turn for the worst pretty quick out in these remote areas. So I'm glad you got out all right. I mean, I've had that happen to me with contacts before, but you know, I'm in a city, I'm fine. Um, and I remember it getting infected. And yeah, just, uh, there's not much you can do if you can't get to a doctor. Wow. And uh, yeah, I mean, Suriname and the Guianas are kind of I would say, I mean, the least developed of the rainforest countries. So it's, you know, it can get really hairy out there. I know a friend of a friend researched jaguars in 
I think Guiana, the the one that's just called Guiana, and I, you know, he had gotten all sorts of jungle diseases out there, and it's, uh, yeah, not for the faint of heart. Yeah, I've definitely gotten some jungle diseases over the years. (laughs) (laughs) I've been lucky. What have you gotten? I've gotten, I mean, I've gotten, like, schistosomiasis, which caused all sorts of, like, weird things before I figured out what it was. What does that come from? It's from exposure to stagnant water that has snails in it. So I think I got that in Cambodia in a swamp. Um, not positive, but I think so. And but it caused like weird things. Like I had like a, I had like claw hand. Oh wow! <laughs> I had like a lot of GI issues. I had like weird eye problems. I had all sorts of stuff, but they were very random. Like just one day I'd have like claw hand, and then the next day I would have. GI issues and the next day like my eyes were all messed up and the next day I would like have a seizure and um, it took a while to figure out what it was but you know once we figured out what it was it was very treatable but I've had um, I had some sort of thing that was probably from ticks but it was like a hemorrhagic thing I've had just you know you wake up and your eyes like you, you've got bitten by something and your eye doesn't work <laughs> in New Guinea I mean just weird stuff like you know it goes away eventually uh, I've been stung in the eye by a centipede. Uh, I've been stung in the eye by a bee. So just I get something with eyes, I guess, with me. But um, yeah, just like a lot of <laughs> adventures. Out, or you know, I, I, I'm not. I, I don't say I'm an adventurous person. Like my my philosophy is adventure is what happens when things go wrong. <laughs> yeah, definitely had some adventures. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. But uh, no malaria, no dengue, no yellow fever, at least. I mean, so I'm out and I'll, I'll ask people out in the middle of nowhere, like, oh, have you ever gotten malaria? Oh, yeah, I've had malaria seven times and like that sort of stuff. So I don't know. I feel lucky that I've never gotten any of that. Let's see. And then the next question is, what is the best journalistic article piece or whatever medium, again, that you have consumed recently and it can't be from your own publication? I really like stuff that comes out from Bellingcat. So it's a investigative journalism site and they, because they use kind of novel approaches to doing their investigation. So for example, they, they use satellite imagery to verify the authenticity and location of videos. And so they've done a bunch of really interesting reporting. I mean, so they were early to identify why the Malaysia Airlines flight 17 was downed over Ukraine back in 2014. They looked at some of the Russian spy poisoning cases. So, I mean, I'm not picking a specific article, but I would say that their stuff is just very interesting um, journalistically. What is the site called? Bellingcat. Okay, I've never heard of it. I'll have to put up a link to it afterwards. Um, What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Well, I mean, be something silly, like I wish I bought a bunch of Bitcoin in like 2009 or something like that. So, I mean, (laughs) I I assume you don't want an answer like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. I mean, spoken like the true founder of a nonprofit, like, you know, thinking about what you could do with the money if you had it. Yeah, I mean, I would have borrowed as much money as possible and then, you know, had a billion dollar endowment now of Bitcoin. (laughs) Could do a lot of environmental reporting with that. Yeah. Yeah. What is one thing most people don't know about you? I mean, a lot of people think I live in Brazil or Indonesia, but I live in the United States. And uh, 
I think I live a fairly conventional life. So I think sometimes people think I'm, you know, like out in the jungle all the time or an adventurer or something, but I'm really just pretty normal. I don't know if that's interesting enough, though. I mean, that that makes sense to me. I mean, I, I was looking at you and I'm like, oh, he's just in California. I, I was surprised at first, I would say. And one of the that this just reminds me of one other thing that uh, maybe would also fit this question. But I, I do know that you recognize that your name is Rhett Butler, which is the same as a person from Gone with the Wind. And I was a bit surprised to hear that your parents, you're from California and your parents, you you always lived there. And I, I thought, you know, you would have to be from the South to get a name like that. Yeah, I mean, so Rhett Butler is actually a very common name in the United States. There's like thousands of Rhett Butlers. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, there's actually a, it's a fa- there's a family link. So my grandfather was the only survivor in a plane crash in the Air Corps. And um, he was at this air base and um, Clark Gable was preparing for a role in a movie called Test Pilot. And Clark Gable wanted, Clark Gable is the actor who played Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind. And my grandfather was the closest thing to a test pilot at this air base at the time because he'd survived this plane crash. And so Clark Gable roomed with my grandfather to learn what it was, you know, like about his experiences in the Air Corps. So we had that connection and the family name was Butler. And so that plus my parents' uh, sadistic sense of humor culminated in me being named Rhett Butler. (laughs) And, And even worse than that, my neighbor growing up was Ashley. And then there was actually a girl at my high school named Scarlett O'Hara who was a couple of years younger than me. So on principle, I could never speak to her because it was just, you know, it was just too much. But uh, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. There's definitely, you know, something most people don't know about you in there. I mean, that test pilot story is pretty interesting. So obviously, you know, traveling in foreign countries and things like that can lead to a lot of misunderstandings. So one question I like to ask is what is the most embarrassing situation (laughs) related to your journalistic work that you've gotten into? Uh, So far, I've managed to avoid anything extremely embarrassing, I would say. Usually it's something, the most embarrassing thing is like a a simple uh, copywriting issue, like I'll misspell Brazil in the title of a story or something. But I haven't had any like major faux pas internationally. I did get called out once for not properly addressing an ambassador. I called them an ambassador rather than, what is it? I've forgotten now. Whatever the proper terminology for an ambassador is. And I got called out publicly for that, but I wasn't really embarrassed because that's not something most people know. But yeah, so far, so far, so good. Not, Not too many really embarrassing things. Well, that's good. What is your favorite film book TV show or other media property related to journalists. It can be fiction, nonfiction, even if it's tangential, really whatever. I enjoyed a film called The Killing Fields. It came out in the 80s. It's about the Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia. Sure. Yeah. No, I, uh, that's definitely a classic. And then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't do what you're doing now, if you couldn't be a journalist, couldn't run a news website, but could do anything else, NBA player, whatever, what job would you do? I would probably do something in the finance world around sustainability, because I feel like that 
could be impactful. I mean, obviously having money or, or access or, or control of money puts you in a position of having influence. So being able to influence how money is being used and putting it towards sustainability and, you know, making things better would be, I think, something that would be of interest. Cool. That makes sense. And uh, yeah, that's all of my questions. So I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Rhett. Uh, well, thank you. It was a pleasure. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Rhett Butler, founder and editor-in-chief of the environmental news website, Mangabay. Go to mangabay.com to check out their work. And if you like it, I really suggest you make a donation at mangabay.org donate. A significant portion of their revenue comes from reader donations. I'll post links for that and some other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at, at @foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Beyond that, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, June 6th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.